From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A conversation today about mental health thanks to Missy Franklin, the Olympic gold medal swimmer. As a kid in Colorado, her parents knew how happy the pool made her. They saw me get into the water every day with a huge smile on my face and get out with an even bigger one. But at a certain point, depression set in and anxiety, insomnia, as well as an eating disorder. Not only was I not performing well, I wasn't having fun. I was miserable. I was dreading practice. I was dreading competition. Franklin spoke at the University of Colorado's Depression Center. We'll listen to that speech, then learn how the center is giving coaches mental health training. There's a lot of research out there that shows empathic leaders actually get more out of people. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The pain of mental illness is compounded when it stays in the dark. Bringing it into the light, talking about it, can lift some of the shame and stigma. And it's what we'll do on today's show. We have help from an Olympic gold medal swimmer. Missy Franklin grew up in Centennial, attended Regis Jesuit High School, And recently, she opened up about crippling depression, which reared its head as she prepared for Olympic trials for the 2016 Games. People are expecting for me to make the team no problem and then go on to have the best eight days of competition in my life. And I've never been lower. I've never been further from myself as a person or as an athlete. Franklin shared her experience in a keynote at the University of Colorado's Depression Center, We're going to share that speech today and then hear about the center's unique collaboration with CU Athletics to train coaches in suicide prevention. Athletic Director Rick George will be one of our guests. For now, Missy Franklin. So I will start from the very, very beginning. I was born in Pasadena, California, but I flew out to Colorado when I was two days old. So I'm technically born and bred Colorado. I lived here all throughout my childhood and just had a magical childhood here, as we all know. We just love this state so much. I grew up doing every sport imaginable. I'm an only child. My parents, Dick and DA, are my best friends in this entire world. We have an unbelievable relationship, and they wanted to foster my passions. They wanted to foster what I loved. So I did swimming. I did basketball, volleyball, soccer, tennis, skiing. I did gymnastics, which we learned very quickly was not going to be my sport when I could touch the high bar when I was like six years old. I tried ice skating. That one didn't work out so well either. Coordination, not my thing, hence the pool. And I loved all of it. I loved being a part of a team. I loved competing. But I loved, loved, loved swimming. Swimming was my heart. That was where my passion lied. And I think my parents saw that. They saw me get into the water every day with a huge smile on my face and get out with an even bigger one. So when I wanted to pursue that even further, 
they supported me in that. So my career started very, very early. I was very young, but I first qualified for Olympic trials when I was 12 years old. So I went to Olympic trials in 2008, which was the Olympic trials for the Beijing Olympics, and I was 13. I was the second youngest person there. And if you can imagine this dorky, gangly 13-year-old at Olympic trials, I'm swimming in the same pool as people like Michael Phelps and Natalie Coughlin and Nathan Adrian and Ryan Lochte. And I literally have their posters on my wall in my bedroom at home. And I'm just like creepily following them around the pool deck, just can't even believe that I'm here. And I'm with my idols and I'm swimming at the same meet as them. It was so surreal. It was such an unbelievable experience for me. And I had no intention of making the team, of course, but what I learned, the confidence that I gained in just being there with them, it taught me so much. And I remember driving back from that meet and I said, you know, mom and dad, in, in four years, I'm gonna be super old, wise, and mature. I'm gonna be 17. And I really want to make that Olympic team. I know this year I didn't have a chance. It was just a great learning experience. I did my best. But four years from now, I want a chance. I want a shot. That's all I want. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And my mom and dad said, great. Just let us know what we can do to help. And so for the next four years, that's what we did. We all chased my dream together of becoming an Olympian. I went to Regis Jesuit High School here. I swam in high school, and I started growing up the ranks of USA Swimming. I made my first national team. I made my first Pan Pacific Championship team. I made my first world championship team. And lo and behold, four years later, we're already there. And we went to Olympic trials in 2012. And after all the work that I had put in, I had set out what I wanted to do. I had a shot at making the Olympic team. Turns out, I ended up making it in seven events, which is a little overwhelming for your first Olympic Games. And here I am, you know, four weeks later after trial, sitting in the village in London with my coach, and it's starting to weigh on me a little bit. You know, this is my first Olympics. I'm looking at him going, Seven events? Did we, did we bite off a little more than we can chew? Like, are we sure that we can do this? And he looked at me and he said, I have all the faith in the world in you because you know what this is? This is just another swim meet. It's the same 200 back that you swam four weeks ago at trials to earn your spot on this team. It's the same 200 back that you've swam a million times before. All you have to do is go out there and have fun. And that was how I approached my sport. Every time I got behind the block, right before I raced, I would put a massive smile on my face to remind myself that why I do this is because I love it, because it brings me joy, because I love pushing myself and seeing what I'm capable of doing, and it's fun. I love it. So that's what I did in London. Before every race, 17 years old, I would get up behind the block, put a massive smile on my face, and go have fun. And that worked out pretty well for me. London turned out to be some of the best eight days of my life. I ended up walking away with four gold medals, a bronze, and a tweet from Justin Bieber. So it was a very, very good eight days for a 17-year-old. And I remember coming back from that, and my whole life had changed. I went into those Olympics naive in a good way. I was just so focused on having fun and no one knew who I was, no one cared, there were no expectations. So I just went out to see what I was capable of doing. 
So I came back to my senior year of high school. I decided to remain an amateur athlete because I wanted to swim in college. So I forewent any contracts, any professional sponsorship deals because I wanted to be a part of a team. That was always something that was so important to me. And swimming in college, in my mind, was going to be one of the most amazing team experiences I was ever going to have. So I went to University of California, Berkeley. I swam there for two years, had a wonderful experience. And of course, lo and behold, now again, we're about a year out from the 2016 Olympic Games. And I had some decisions to make this time because I was now a professional athlete. So I was now not only representing myself and my country and my school, but I was representing companies that were promoting me, promoting my image, promoting what I was going to achieve at these next Olympic Games. I was no longer the unknown. I was someone who had come in and established herself in 2012. So not only were people expecting me to do well in 2016, they were expecting me to do better. And I had set the bar pretty high for myself in 2012. So I started to feel something I'd really never felt before, and that was the pressure and the external expectations of the people and the world around me. And I'd really ever only focused on my own and what I wanted to achieve, what were my expectations for myself. And all of a sudden, those got really quiet, and everyone else's got really, really loud. So I made the decision to leave Berkeley and come back home here to Colorado and train, live with my parents and with my old club team and with my old coach who had led me to the 2012 Olympic Games because that was where I felt comfort. That was where I felt confidence. And I needed a lot of that at that time. And I think looking back on that decision, I really did believe it was what was best for me. And I know it happened for a reason. But one of the things that happened because I lost all balance in my life. And that was something that up until that point, I had tried so hard to maintain because that was important. I needed to feel like more than just Missy the swimmer. I needed to have all these other areas of my life that I was feeding into because I knew that I was more than just a swimmer. I, I, I truly believed that I was, at least I thought that I did. And then I came home and all of a sudden, my entire world became just swimming. That entire year leading up to Rio became training for two hours in the morning, weights in the morning, training two hours in the evening, following my strict nutrition plan, falling asleep at a certain time, taking a certain nap during the day, over and over and over again. And I was doing it essentially alone. So I did this for several months, and I was struggling competitively. I was working harder than I had ever worked before in the pool. I was training great, and yet at every competition, I was just falling shorter and shorter and shorter of what I wanted to achieve. And then I noticed I was changing, that not only was I not performing well, I wasn't having fun. I was miserable. I was dreading practice. I was dreading competition. And I started to barely even be able to recognize who I was in the pool, who I was in the mirror, from someone who had found so much joy in everything that she did her entire life to not being able to find it anywhere at all. And unfortunately, I probably waited too long to ask for help because I think there's often this pressure of being tough and being strong. And asking for help can be so scary. And 
At first glance, you might even see it as a sign of weakness. And I figured, I'm, I'm tough enough. I'm strong enough. I don't need help. I can get through this. I'm going to prove to myself that I can get through this without help. And unfortunately, I got to a point where I just simply could not go on if I did not ask for help. So around April in 2016, just several months shy of the Olympic trials for the Rio Games, I sat down with my coaches and I looked at them and I said, something is very, very, very wrong. I don't know exactly what it is, but I just know that something is wrong. So I explained to them and in that moment of finally saying it out loud, that alone just felt like the weight of the world had fallen off my shoulders. And I realized I had never felt more courageous in my life than I did in that moment when I finally stood up for myself and said, something needs to change. I cannot go on like this. And so after talking to my coaches and explaining some of the feelings I was having, I went to go see a psychologist where I was officially diagnosed with depression, insomnia, anxiety, and an eating disorder. At this point, what do I do? Right? I'm so close to trials where people are expecting for me to make the team no problem and then go on to have the best eight days of competition in my life. And I've never been lower. I've never been further from myself as a person or as an athlete. And I have weeks to turn it around. Where do, where do I start? I've never experienced anything like this. I have no tools in my tool belt to figure out how do I go from here? Where do I go from here? And thankfully, I had an unbelievable support system during this time that just walked through this with me. I didn't want to go on medication at the time because I had no idea how that was going to impact me physically. So the first thing we all thought to do was to talk to a sports psychologist. So that was what we did immediately. And I essentially went into survival mode for the next two months. It's one thing to go through the hardest time of your life for me, it was another to have to do it in front of two billion people in my sport's biggest stage. I went to Olympic trials, and at that point, I just had to make the team. My first chance was the Hunter backstroke. I was the reigning Olympic champion. I placed seventh, not even close to making the team. And that night, I went back to my hotel room, and I cried for about three hours. And I said, you've, you've got two options here. You either give up or you fight with everything that you have. And even if you don't make the team, you'll look back knowing you did everything you possibly could to get there. Thankfully, I chose option number two. And I ended up qualifying for my second Olympic Games in the 200 freestyle, the 200 backstroke, and the 800 freestyle relay. So three events for my second games. One hurdle down, one to go. We had about a month before the games, and at this point, I'm still in survival mode. I'm still working with my sports psychologist, but I have no idea how I can go from my performance at trials to what everyone is expecting of me in a few weeks in Rio. So I get to Rio, and I remember calling my parents the night before the meet started, hysterically crying. I couldn't even speak. And my dad was just saying over and over on the phone again, honey, it's just swimming. It's just swimming. But at that point, swimming was my entire world. It was my entire life. And if I failed at that, what was left? And that was essentially what happened for the next eight days. I failed. I competed 
the worst I've ever competed. I didn't qualify for a single final, not even in the event that I was not only the reigning Olympic champion, but the current world record holder in. I had to watch that event from the stands, cheering on my teammate who ended up winning, which was incredibly special. But those days, having to live through that and to not only have to just experience it, but to have to answer questions about it, to have to walk through the media mix zone and have reporters ask, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And to not come up with excuses, but simply just say, I don't, I don't know. I've done everything I could possibly do, and yet this is where I am. This is all I have to give, and I'm giving it all, and it's not enough. It's safe to say that after Rio, I had a lot of healing to do, and that's really where my mental health journey began, because I realized that I spent so long after Rio trying to answer the question, why? Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening? Why am I feeling like this? And after several months, I just got fed up. And I said, I'm, I'm done trying to figure out the why. I need to figure out the what. What am I gonna do because this happened? What am I gonna take away from this experience? What am I gonna learn moving forward? And as soon as I made that shift, my healing began. I started working full-time with a therapist who was wonderful. I swear by therapy, I still go, it's a godsend. But I really began to uncover that my identity had become so wrapped up in my sport. And I had not acknowledged that for so long because my sport was going so well. So it was easy for me to say, oh yeah, I'm more than Missy the swimmer because swimming was going really well. And then for the first time, when my swimming failed me, I felt like the biggest failure, and I failed me. And I had no idea where to go. I had no idea what Missy Franklin had to offer the world other than going a 204.06 in a 200 backstroke. What do I have to give? What, what is my worth? What do I have to offer? And I started to find my way back to that balance aspect that was so important to me. That Yes, I care about being Missy the swimmer, but you know what I care about being more? Missy the daughter. Missy the wife. Now Missy the mom. I mean, I have a daughter. <laughs> That's the most important thing in the world to me. And, and now being able to reflect on that, looking back and saying, yes, being Missy the swimmer was important, but what it has allowed me to do is so much more important. And this healing process took so much time. It took so much energy. And it also taught me that healing is not linear. Our mental health is not a journey that you experience something, you heal, and you never have to worry about it again. It's like our physical health. If we worked out every day for six months and we're in the best shape of our life, but never worked out again, we're not gonna stay in that shape, right? It's something we have to consistently work at, something we consistently have to be conscious of. And every time we go through something, every time we experience hardship or challenge or loss, we're getting tools. Those tools that I didn't have the first time around. Tools in our tool belt that whenever something comes, we have a little bit of confidence that we can draw on and say, okay, last time this worked well for me. Last time therapy really helped. Last time medication really helped. Last time reaching out for a friend really helped. And now I'm gonna try all this and maybe I'm gonna try something new if those aren't working this time. And that's something that has just carried with me so much throughout my journey. 
and has helped me get to the point where I can stand on a stage and share that story with all of you, which I'm so, so, so grateful for. Olympic gold medal swimmer and parent Missy Franklin, speaking recently at the University of Colorado's Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center. There's a lot testing our mental health right now, global realities like the pandemic and local tragedies, the Marshall Fire, December's rampage in Denver and Lakewood. We're dedicating a healthy portion of today's show to mental health, and our lens is athletics. Now, CU Athletic Director Rick George, who struck up a unique collaboration with the school's Depression Center to train coaches in suicide prevention. Matthew Mishkind is the center's Deputy Director of Operations for Military and Veteran Programs. Rick, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here, Ryan. Looking forward to our conversation. And hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having us. Rick, when other elite athletes, uh, say tennis player Naomi Osaka, gymnast Simone Biles, talked about their struggles last year, did you find yourself thinking about the student athletes in your own programs, the, the ongoing pressures they face? Yeah, I, I did. Obviously, at the intercollegiate athletic uh, level, you know, our student athletes have a lot of pressures, in not only to perform athletically, but to perform academically, perform socially. And, you know, with social media, the criticism sometimes that you can get uh, when your performance doesn't get to the level that people expect it to be, some of the things that they see can be very difficult for them. And so, it's important that uh, we recognize that and we have the proper programs in place to support our student athletes. Is the word to tell them to get off social media? You can tell them that, but we all know that, you know, they, that's kind of their form of communication these days and, and uh, it's real and uh, it's out there. And so, again, I think it does impact young people and not just athletes. I think young people in general, because there's, you know, a lot going on and, and people have really turned to social media to get content and to see positive things and to see, you know, unfortunately negative things that could impact their mental health. So, Matt, same question. When you heard Missy Franklin, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka open up about their struggles, what what stood out to you as you heard them speak? You know, one of the first things that stood out to me, and I actually talked to Missy about this, was kind of Missy's experience. And, you know, talking about the differences that Missy went through several Olympics ago and what Simone Biles, et cetera, are going through these days and just the dramatic changes we've seen and the willingness, I think, for athletes to actually speak up. And, you know, some of the work that like Missy has done to open up the conversation, others have done it, you know, Michael Phelps has done it as mm -hmm. well. I don't, I don't know if like standing on the backs of giants per se is the right term here, but you know, you're seeing a lot of people who are really pushing it out there. And I think it's helping everybody, you know, everybody's seeing this. And certainly there's people who had a lot of negative comments about what was going on, but I have three kids and a couple of them are in high school right now and just talking to their coaches, how much more they're paying attention to it, how much more they're hearing from the kids. I mean, you're really starting to see a lot of people talk about it. And, you know, from the athletic community, obviously they have big platforms, people pay attention to it, people listen to them. And if you can hear an athlete or somebody else who's front and center talking about things, I like to say to people, so what's the issue with the rest of us talking about it, right? Mm. 
Rick George. Yeah, and, I, and I think that's that's an important point. And, you know, for our student athletes, you know, they want everybody to know it's okay to not be okay. You know, we created a group called Boulder Buffs, and it's a peer advocate. It's somebody from each team that our student athletes that can go to if they're feeling anxiety and depression and uh, so they can help them get the help that they need. And Evan Batty is is one of our student athletes, our basketball player that's on that. And it's been really impactful. But, you know, for our population and our student athletes, 75% of our student athletes will see one of our mental health practitioners during the course of them being here. I want to just play devil's advocate here and say, is there room for a coach to be um, stern, exacting, I expect more of you? Well, look, it's, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, the old days of, you know, just tape it up and go is is over with, right? I mean, you really need to understand and listen to your student athletes. You know, yeah, you want to be firm as a coach, but you also have to be cognizant of the young person that you're talking to and you've got to know your student athletes so you know what they can take. And, and is this a student athlete that really needs you to love on them, to put your arm around them, or is it somebody you really need to be in maybe a little more firm, I guess is uh, the answer to your, I mean, is what yeah. you had mentioned a minute ago, but I think you got to balance it and you got to know who your student athletes are. Matt, I mentioned that you are involved as well with mental health in the military and among veterans. I wonder if any of what you hear about shifts in athletics mirrors a shift you see in, you know, the defense world around stigma, around checking in, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, before before I answer that, I just want to say, going back to that last point, yeah. one of my favorite phrases these days is empathy with accountability. You know, I think you can have both, right? You can still hold people accountable for what they need to do for performance while you're empathic. And I think that's actually, there's a lot of research out there that shows empathic leaders actually get more out of people. So Matt, to this idea of whether there is an echo, a similarity in the world of athletics and defense. Oh, there certainly is. I mean, there's a lot of connections, you know, how people live their lives, the discipline, the focus on uh, physical and mental toughness. Uh, you know, from a stigma perspective, uh, you know, it, it's still out there. I wouldn't, I'm not going to be naive and say it's gone. I think both areas have seen a lot of changes in the stigma. And again, a lot of it is because people have started to realize it's an injury, right? It's an injury that we can, that we can work on. And if you're not working on it, then you're not getting better. I think as you get into the military setting, there's still this fear that people have about maybe security clearances or will they be allowed to do certain things? And a lot of that's not true, but it's still out there. And, and you know, so you see probably more of that with, um, some of those populations. Mm. But yeah, there's definitely been definitely been a big change. And again, the other thing we've seen with athletics is you see a lot of people at senior leaders, not just sort of senior officers, senior enlisted, um, other really well-known people. You'll see Medal of Honor recipients talking about their struggles with mental health. And as you see more and more people talking about it, again, more and more people are either saying, huh, that sounds like me, or yeah, man, why am I not saying something, right? I can have this conversation. I can talk to somebody about it. 
Well, let's get to the collaboration that CU Athletics uh, is doing with the Johnson Depression Center and the notion of training coaches in the specific area of suicide prevention. Now, Rick, it was a little over five years ago that the school's Heisman Trophy winning running back Rashawn Salam died by suicide. Uh, in retrospect, how much do you think about him and what might have been done in terms of support? Well, look, I, I, I think five years ago, uh, we weren't doing near enough. Uh, you know, obviously, Rashawn had, had left long before that. But um, certainly, um, you know, we had started looking at how do we improve in the areas of mental health. And, and um, we're actually partnering uh, not only with the Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center, uh, but we're also partnering with our Bus for Life, which is a former, uh, it's a, a group that oversees kind of our former student athletes. And their whole focus is on suicide prevention because we've had a suicides uh, more than just Rashawn Salam and Obviously, he was the most high profile, but one suicide is too many. Uh, and so the partnership that we have with Matthew and his depression center is uh, really important for us. And Matt, do you want to say a few words about the nature of that? What what are coaches going to be taught to look out for, to do? Yeah, so the program we're working on, it's, it's actually based on some stuff we're doing at the Depression Center in workplaces. So we have a, a group, or a program that we call um, Working Mind. So it's suicide prevention specific to the workplace. Hmm. Um, and this is and a workplace. I mean, it's, it's a study place, but it's a workplace too, you know. It, it is a workplace. And so what we're doing right now is modifying our scripts. We have videos that we do with the program really to focus on coaches and athletics so a lot of the same ideas, a concept, how you talk to somebody, what you should say to folks, what it's okay to say to people. The, Give the me videos, an example of a lesson, like a, a video lesson, you know? Like a video lesson. So, you know, somebody who is expressing, you know, suicidal intent or suicidal ideation. And it may not be right up in front of you, like I'm thinking about killing myself. You know, you're sort of listening to other things. And so you see a video of somebody talking about something. And then another video of somebody approaching them and saying, you know, I'm concerned about you. I've been hearing this. I, I want to ask you, have you been thinking about killing yourself? Which, again, for a lot of people, that's people sort of used to sometimes see somebody like, whoa, but that's really the question that you need to ask somebody if you're concerned that somebody has suicidal thoughts is really being very forward with them. And what we find is that that's not a question that people react negatively to. Mm. Actually, that would be my find, fear. If I asked that, you know, I, I right. would have some fear about how how blunt that is. And that's what we hear from people. What you actually find is that very few people ever ask that question. And it actually is shown to reduce anxiety for people. Um, and it actually leads to conversations. Mm. Um, I did a training several years ago. It was for a, a pretty big organization and there was somebody in there from their HR department. And we were talking about whether anybody had actually asked anybody the question. And this guy raised his hand and said, you know, I've had to ask it a number of times. Nobody has ever said, yes, I was thinking about killing myself. He said, but so far, nobody has actually had a negative reaction to me either. Rick George, do, do you imagine that this kind of training could be replicated elsewhere in the country in athletics? 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's important that it's replicated around the country. And, you know, I'm anxious to go through this and because I need to be educated too. I mean, we all do. Our entire staff does, not just our coaches, but our entire staff needs to be educated and our student athletes, because if, if our student athletes know if someone on their team is hurting, they can bring it to an attention of, uh, of our team that, that will make sure that we support them. So anything that we can do to get better in that space to make sure that we don't have another suicide is really important. And yet, and I'll have you both reflect on this perhaps, we know that the pandemic is exacerbating underlying mental health problems. That has to be true for athletes who, you know, might have meets canceled or trainings or games or seasons. Uh, Would you perhaps just shed a little light on that. Matt, you want to start and then Rick? Well, if I can start and I'll let Matt finish because he'll be better, but I just want to give you one example. I mean, we cancel our Kansas basketball game 10 days ago, two hours before tip. And that had an impact on our student athletes. And maybe that student athlete that was the first one or the second one that tested positive that day, they feel some guilt and remorse for doing that. Mm. That's reality. And that's really tough because they wanted to play that game and they couldn't play that. So can you imagine the impact it had on that, those couple of student athletes? So I, I wanted to say that before, yeah. you know, Matt jumped in because that's a real live experience we had in the last 10 days. And a fascinating dynamic. Uh, Matt? You know, from a, from a clinical perspective or a clinic perspective and I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are across the board. I hear anywhere from 25, 30, you know, 50% or more increases in the number of people calling for services. So it has certainly impacted everybody. Athletes are, you know, they're human beings, right? They're part of society. So it's affected them as well. And a lot of what the trainings we're doing, a lot of these conversations that we're doing, even this conversation today is trying to also really let people know that we need to take care of each other, right? We don't need to just say, hey, go talk to the psychologist or psychiatrist. There's a lot we can do to talk to each other. I'll, I'll use empathy again, be empathic, kind of give each other some grace, but look out for each other and just say, hey, how are things going, right? Because a lot of times, just a simple conversation, a couple minute conversation, it may not be everything somebody needs, but it's really a start. And people just feeling that other people are looking out for them knowing that other people are struggling with some of the same things. I mean, that's one thing we hear with the pandemic is nobody's alone in feeling disconnected from folks, right? Nobody's alone in feeling like um, working from the house, I'm kind of over it, you know, all these kind of things. Well, that, that's all sort of there. No yeah. one's alone in being alone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I guess, paradoxical, maybe uh-huh. that's what we call it, but um, I, I think that's true. And again, having more and more conversations about it and just being more open open to talk about these issues, much like you follow things like cancer. You know, people used to whisper the word cancer. Now we talk very openly about it. We talk about people who are cancer survivors and, you know, being heroes, things like that. Mental health has, will have its due there. It's time Mm -hmm. for mental health to kind of follow that same pathway where, you know, we're talking about it. We're very open about it. And it's not just, it's not just the providers and providers are amazing but it's everybody helping out everybody else. And that's what a lot of these trainings are intended to do. Well, and if we all have a role, just to go back to what Rick George said, if we all have a role, 
we also have a role as people who engage on social media to remember there are actual people on the other end. I don't say that with any trauma of my own, I promise you. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Thank you very much. Matthew Mishkind of the University of Colorado's Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center and the school's longtime athletic director, Rick George. If you are in crisis, you can connect to support by texting TALK to 38255. And we'll be right back. Did you know that an early Israeli prime minister spent her formative years in Denver? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This week, a special episode of the CPR News podcast, Purplish, looks back on events at the U.S. Capitol a year ago. Even though I was a floor above them, I could hear the rioters chanting and banging on doors. As the threat became clear, I took my phone and laptop and ducked into a nearby recording booth, locked the metal door, and turned out the light. Purplish, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the new Colorado Public Radio app. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She was a founding mother of Israel, a signer of its Declaration of Independence, and prime minister during the country's early crises. I'm talking about Golda Meir, who lived in Denver as a teenager. Her house here is now a museum, and it will be rededicated today on the Auraria campus. Lena Fishman is executive director of the Golda Meir House Museum. Hi, Lena. Hello, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. How did Golda Meir wind up in Denver in 1913? It's a great story. Uh, She was a rebellious teenager, like many teenagers you may know. And she had immigrated with her family from Russia. They were refugees and they came to Milwaukee in 1906 to escape anti-Semitism and violent pogroms. And in 1913, she was about to move on to high school, and she wanted to become a teacher and continue her education. And at the time, uh, women who were teachers could not also be married. So her parents were very worried if she became a teacher, she would not get married. So they got in a big fight. And one day, Golda pretended to walk to school but she really got on a train and landed right here in Denver in Union Station. Because her sister is here, right? That's correct. Her sister, her older sister, was actually here in Denver because she had tuberculosis and she was receiving treatment. And her sister was here with her husband and their small child, Judith. So 14-year-old Goldie, as she was called, moved in with her sister's family at 1606 Julian Street. Uh, just west of where Mile High Stadium is now. What was the neighborhood like in 1913? So she lived on the west side of Denver near Sloan's Lake. There were a lot of immigrants there, um, especially a lot of Jewish immigrants. Many, many of them had uh, come to Denver because they had tuberculosis and they were seeking a treatment from our, our wonderful Denver air. And several hospitals were set up at that time, like National Jewish And the neighborhood was just filled with um, intellectuals and uh, immigrants who were thinking about how to make their lives better and and the lives of of other immigrants as well. Now, the the house we're talking about, it's not fancy. It's not big. Exactly right. It's a small little duplex. There are just three tiny rooms 
in the whole house. And it's a very humble house. And, and actually, that was one of the reasons why some people felt it didn't need to be saved because it was just a small, poor house. What was her daily life like, Golda's, in terms of school, in terms of work? So Golda came to Denver to pursue her education. She attended North High School. Uh, She got excellent grades. After school, she worked for her brother-in-law in his cleaning and pressing business, which was located near the Brown Palace. She got her homework done while she was waiting for customers to come in to get their clothing pressed. And then some magic started to happen in the evenings. Yeah, well, say more. I'm intrigued. What is the magic? Her sister, Shana, and her husband, Sam, were part of sort of these revolutionists who had immigrated from Russia. And they were an intellectual crew of Denver at the time. And it was said that this was the house to be in. Um, They had these nightly parlor meetings where they would discuss the issues of the day, including unions and socialism and, you know, women's suffrage and definitely uh, dreaming about a safe place where Jews could go and have their own homeland. So I have to think that her political mind and her social mind were being forged at this time. Absolutely. She says in her autobiography that Denver is where her education began and where she became inspired for everything else that she accomplished uh, the rest of her life. I I have to ask, Lena, you mentioned her grades. Have you seen her report card? Is that something you've dug up at North? Yes, we we actually have her report card hanging up on the wall of the museum. Okay. And she has mostly A's. I think there's a, a one lower grade in art class. Oh, in art. Interesting. Yeah. All right. As an adult, Golda Meir moved to Palestine, worked towards the foundation of Israel. She was foreign minister through the Suez crisis, prime minister through the Munich Olympics when... Israeli athletes were killed by terrorists, as well as the Fourth Arab-Israeli War, sometimes called the Yom Kippur War. Meanwhile, these Denver years were largely forgotten. When did someone realize that this unexceptional house was anything but? Yeah, so Golda Meir died in, in 1978. And then in 1981, a woman named Jean May, who was a community activist in the Sloan's Lake area, and she was writing a cookbook about famous people who had lived in Denver. And she discovered that the great Golda Meir, who had actually lived here, um, and at the time, since Golda had recently passed away, she was still very famous. Um, you know, she had been on the cover of Time magazine and um, invited to the White House several times. So Jean May was just um, so excited to find out that Golda lived in her neighborhood on the west side of Denver. But then she also found out that the house was imminently about to be demolished. And so the home was saved, I guess, in the nick of time. Well, just barely. And there was a tremendous fight and several people really had to rally together. And we will be honoring this group of people today. When the house was saved, were there any objects related to Golda inside? 
Yeah. So one of the saviors of the House was former Senator Dennis Gallagher. And he also lived in the neighborhood and heard uh, from Jean May that, that the house was about to be demolished. And he went to the house in the middle of the night and was searching around. And he went through the construction fence, which I think was illegal, although he told me that he would do it again. And he found several items that came from that time period in the early 1900s. And he also found invoices and paperwork that had Golda's brother-in-law's name. So it seemed that she really did in fact live in that house. And then he also found on the doorpost of the house, painted over hundreds of times, a Jewish mezuzah, which is um, an item that's found on the doorpost of every Jewish house all over the world. Um, and has been like that for thousands of years. And inside the mezuzah is, was a rolled up scroll, has a Hebrew writing um, that, that comes from the Old Testament. And Dennis Gallagher is an Irish Catholic, and he didn't quite know what he found, but he knew that it was special, and he knew that it was a spiritual item. And he said that once he found the mezuzah, the mezuzah started protecting this house and everyone started caring about saving the house. But the house like made several moves. I mean, it's placement on the Auraria campus today, and we'll talk about why that is, but it's placement is not where it was. That's correct. Uh, They were finally able to save the house from its first demolition in 1981. And they put the house on a truck and moved it in the early hours before there was much traffic and there were people who stood on the roof of the house and held up the street wires. And they moved the house to Habitat Park near South Santa Fe Drive. And the plan at that time was perhaps that the Audubon Society would use it as office space or a nature museum. But that plan never never materialized. Mm. So I think it finally moves to the Auraria campus in... Uh, the late 80s, I think 1988. And, you know, it's a great question why it didn't move to sort of a, a Jewish plot of land, but I think there, there's, it's very, there just aren't so many of them in Denver. And I'm not sure where it would have necessarily gone. It does strike me, though, that, you know, its placement on an educational campus is maybe mm-hmm. something Golda would have, would have liked. Yeah, I think it's so fitting that this house is on the Auraria campus Golda was here to pursue her education, and so many students on the Auraria campus from the three schools that that live on this campus and and call it their home, those schools have so many students that are also here to pursue their education, and many of them have a similar story to Golda. Many of them are immigrants or refugees from other countries and are all working so hard to get their educations and, and become successful. A professor, I understand, tended to this house as a labor of love for many years, but now it has a a professional staff at last. That's you. (laughs) And uh, to kick off the museum's new era, you're hosting a rededication in honor of the many people indeed involved in saving the Golda Meir House. And you will be serving, I understand, Lena, a special soup. 
Absolutely. We will be serving Golda's chicken soup directly released from the Israeli government. Oh, this was like under lock and key at some point? Correct. Correct. Her, her recipe for chicken soup? Yes. And this will be your first time tasting it? Correct. Oh, I'm excited. Thank you so much, Lena, for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Lena Fishman is executive director of the Golda Meir House Museum, which they're rededicating today on the Auraria campus in Denver. I have tweeted Meyer's matzo ball soup recipe. It's now unclassified. Again, at CPR Warner, at CPR Warner on Twitter. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Anthony Cotton and Nell London. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.